Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Bakaria Kill, nice to see you again. Could you introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Sure. I'm the founder of Graves Hall Capital, which is a private equity firm that buys companies. Using Graves Hall, I've uh, completed two acquisitions. The first, I bought a burlap bag manufacturing company with a private equity firm called NYP Corp. The burlap business is called NYP Corp, not the private equity firm. Completed an acquisition with the family office of an educational technology company. And so that's one part, a portion of things I'm doing or I've done. Additionally, I teach entrepreneurship acquisition and the search fund method to MBA candidates at Cornell's business school. And right now I'm traveling with a program called Remote Here, going to 12 countries for the next 12 months. Started the program in July. And so, yeah, some of the things that I'm involved in right now and things that I'll be involved in for the next coming years. Great. I'd like to talk a little bit about education and then get into Remote Year, if that's okay. You have a very interesting start to education, at least the higher education. Could you please tell us a little bit about that story? Sure. When I came into the entrepreneurship the acquisition world at that time, and to this day, I hadn't completed an MBA and actually I didn't finish an undergraduate degree as well. I had attended Morehouse College, but I couldn't afford to finish school. And so I didn't have like the pedigree that I think most people in my shoes have. I had to augment a lot of the education needs that some people have more often as like a part of their curriculum. My introduction to entrepreneurship through acquisition actually came in a big way through self-education. So it started with me like reading a bunch of like finance books and better understanding sort of the wealth building focus that I needed to have, which was separate from the standard middle-class playbook of trying to find like a good job that pays you a decent salary and you're beholden to that job and now you're on a rat race. And you know, if you lose your job, you lose your lifestyle. So you have to rush and try to find a new job and you're saving money for your 401k. And then hopefully by the time you're 60, you'll have like a million dollars that so you can live off of that for retirement. For me, I thought there probably was a better route and started exploring personal finance as a way to get there and then came across the idea of buying a company. And I thought of it as outlandish and ridiculously audacious. And if I was going to pursue it, I felt like I needed to connect with people who were teaching the subject and knew the subject and not only knew it, but also were practitioners that had done this work before. And I came across a man named Tim Bogard, who's the founder of Search Fund Accelerator, through some videos he had produced on YouTube and found out that he was teaching a course at Columbia Business School, which is like right up the street from where I live in Harlem. And so I decided to go sit in his course as a non-Columbia student, just like went to Columbia Business School, sat in the back of the class, and I learned directly from Tim how to do this work and ultimately developed a relationship with Tim as well. But more importantly, I learned how to actually structure deals, how to pull together the financing, where the financing sources were. And it also got the confidence from meeting other people who had done it, going out and bought companies about how to do it. So from that point forward, started taking it on as a mission. I never get tired of hearing that story and told it myself quite a few times. It goes on from there, going into office hours at Harvard and flying cross country to Stanford, if I recall correctly. Is that right? That's true. I, I usually, for the purposes of calls, I usually truncate it and treat it as if everything was just happening at Columbia. But the truth is that once I had a decent amount of information from Columbia at that time, the entrepreneurship through acquisition world was very, very small. There was such a small universe of information to learn from. And it felt at that time that it was almost like a secret, like it was 
for a long time, it was really only taught at Stanford and at Harvard, really first at Stanford and then eventually at Harvard and then eventually at Columbia. But it was really only those three schools that were like teaching the subject as a uh, general course. And those courses, for the most part, were like packed. Like it was one of the most high rated courses. People were like some people were coming to Stanford and Columbia and Harvard specifically for the purposes of learning this subject. And so for me, I was trying to understand it and I couldn't find any more information about it online. There were a limited amount of videos that were provided by Stanford Business School. There were very limited amount of books. The most popular and most well-known stories in both in fiction and nonfiction were published decades before. So there's a book that's called Cash McCall that was about buying companies, a guy like me going out looking for a company to buy. And that book was published in the 1960s. Then there was another book called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun, which was published in the 1990s. But it was like very few books that were talking about entrepreneurially, you as an individual, not you as a major corporation. There's Barbarians at the Gate, which is one of the most prestigious private equity books. But that's the story of Nestle trying to buy a major corporation, you know what I'm saying? It's not the story of like an individual. There are individuals in those stories, but they're not pulling this capital on their own. KKR, a large institution doing the same thing. And so for me, I was looking for those stories of individuals and they were very limited. And so that's why I ended up going to actually flew across country and sat in David Dodson's class at Stanford and also went to Harvard Business School and actually spent the night at the iLab because the iLab at Harvard, you can only get into it if you have your Harvard ID. I just sort of like followed somebody in (laughs) as they were going in, but I couldn't leave. And the meeting I wanted to have with the person was not until the following day. And so I just stayed the entire evening all the way into the morning time as if I was a student there waiting for the person I was looking to meet to come. And then we ultimately ended up meeting. In fact, he doesn't know that story, but we know each other very well. But yeah, that's the beginnings of me trying to learn this information back in like 2016, 2017. Really taking like a, I got to get this done. If it doesn't happen, there's no other option. <laughs> Not like like a, it's got to be done kind of approach. I love that. And what I see in there is someone who's not taking anything for granted either. I think sometimes we relax, we assume the sun's going to rise, everything's going to be okay. And I mean, I hope it is. But generally, someone that doesn't belong is actually the best performer because they're not taking anything for granted. So in a way, I would wager you probably elevated that class at Columbia for not being a student who went through admissions, et cetera, because you knew Time is limited. You knew you needed to get this information. Was that the case? Were you like one of the top? I don't want to disparage anybody who actually took the class. (laughs) I would say I'm certain that there are people who took that class who after they left the class went on to have great careers, not in any way associated with entrepreneurship through acquisitions or the search fund world. I would wager that the overwhelming majority of the people who took that class then ultimately decide to take it on as a challenge. From my perspective, if I was sitting in their shoes, it's very possible that I would have taken the same approach. You know, you're graduating with what a top three, top four business degree. You have all the options in front of you in the world. Most of them are going to pay you an equivalent amount of money on a per year basis as what you would make on a salary from doing a search. So why not take that? You know, if you can get a job at Bain paying you three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year, I mean, who's going to say that's a bad life? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For me, I wasn't in that position. I was in the position of if I don't buy a company, I'm going to have a terrible and in my opinion, career outlook as a person without an undergraduate degree and without the benefit of a major institution behind me for my business degree. And so I felt like there was really no other option if I wanted to increase my earning potential and increase my lifestyle. This was the only route to me that was available. That's why I took it on as such an important challenge. I saw it as a mission more than I saw it as anything else. 
Yeah, great story. And then here you are teaching it to students at Cornell and around the world through podcasts and networking events, et cetera, I'm sure. Yeah, that's the benefit of it working out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Looking back, would you give a cautionary tale to anyone or what would you say each person just kind of find your own opportunity? Don't let the world tell you no. Yeah, there's definitely, there's only really one cautionary tale that I have, which is when I left Morehouse, it took me a long time to decide to take on this as an approach, right? Now, granted, I was still in my early 20s, mid 20s when I decided to take it on and took this approach. But a successful outcome is usually about a two-year process from the point of deciding that you want to buy a company ultimately to acquisition. And it really literally is going to take two years. Like regardless of the successful guys who get it done in six months and guys who get it done in eight months, yourself budget two years. This is what it's going to take. But there was no reason I needed to wait until I was 25 to decide to do this other than that I decided that I found out about it when I was 25. So the only thing I wish is that I got started sooner. It would have been fantastic. Look, I'm, I'm traveling the world in 34. And that's a great age to be traveling the world. Nobody's going to say, nobody's going to say, oh my God, look at this old man finally getting to get on a plane. And they'll say like, I'm, I'm still useful. But it would have been even better that than when I was 28. There was nothing that was holding me back from doing this other than the fact that I didn't know about it. Once I knew about it, then the second piece of caution that I would give is at some point, even I knew when I was like flying out to Stanford and even taking a class at Columbia, I had read every single thing that I needed to know about this subject. And I could have started working on trying to buy a company even back then. And I think if you asked me back then, I would say, oh, yes, I'm doing it. But I wasn't like on a daily basis talking to business brokers and talking to investment bankers when I thought that I was still trying to learn because I felt like there's some piece of knowledge about how to get this done that I maybe if I just get to the Stanford class, I'll, I'll know it. And then I would take the Stanford class and was like, I, I didn't learn. There was this confirmation. Like I, I learned exactly. <laughs> I, they didn't teach me anything new at that point. I, I knew all the stuff. I had read all the books. I had done all the knowledge gathering. And so the second piece of caution I would give after start as soon as possible, don't delay, would be don't let yourself get too bogged down and trying to get the perfect amount of information. Like ultimately, nobody's deal is going to look like somebody else's deal. The dynamics that are played, the people who are at play, all those things are going to be so different. So there are case studies that can give you sort of like the rules of the road, like things not to do or things to do. But ultimately, the solution is going to be find a deal and start fundraising for it. Okay. You mentioned pedigree before, and I think there's a tinge of that with you going to Columbia and Harvard and Stanford, even though you didn't go through the traditional admissions process. If you're going to start earlier, presumably you have less world life experience. So I would guess you want to make sure that you have good mentors. And perhaps that's an area where you can have some borrowed pedigree, if you will, if you're not going to have the brand of a top institution. Is there anything you would say around that as far as like your profile, how it looks if you were to start earlier? Sure. So I was under the impression at some point that when I met with business owners, like, let, let me give you another thing that I haven't shared yet in the story, David. So when I was in New York, I had a friend who was a member of the Harvard Club of New York, and they showed me there was a time with the Harvard Club of New York when they didn't check membership ID. They didn't check anything. If you walked in with enough confidence and they'd seen you five or six times, they just said, hey, how you doing? And then you walked right in. So I did that at the Harvard Club and at the Yale Club, where for like maybe like a year or so, I was using those places as like my co-working spaces and, and also as like my meeting places for me meeting business owners. 
So a business owner in New York who or who was visiting New York for me, they'd be like, hey, let's go meet for somewhere so we can chat about a deal. And I'd be like, yeah, let's meet at the Yale Club. And they would be like, oh, yeah, sure. I was meet at the Yale Club. So they would get to the Yale Club and I would come down the big winding stairs from the Yale Club and I'd shake their hand. I'm in a nice suit the whole night. From their perspective, oh, shit, this guy is like, <laughs> I'm trying to give all the presentation that I can to try to like convince this person that, you know, I'm a legit person and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> using all the different pieces of whatever I can to try to get the point across. And then ultimately, after all of the pageantry and we're sitting down and I'm well-dressed, none of that really mattered. Like, the only thing that actually mattered, like, they didn't care where I went to school. They didn't care if I knew the president. They didn't care if I was, they didn't care about any of those things. They cared, am I going to give them a good value for their business? That's it. If I could organize a transaction that paid them what they were expecting to get for their business... That's all they cared about. And it didn't matter if I was Joe Schmo, if I if I had pulled up in a beat up pickup truck and hopped out with some overalls on, whatever the, the standard view of what lower class people might look like. If I hopped out and I handed them a check and it was a check that would actually be valid for whatever price. And then me, I'm hopping out of the Harvard Club and I have the perfect dress where I'm like two turns lower than that. It doesn't matter. Like he's going to take the higher check. So I would say it's not so much... Because I was so convinced that you needed all of that in the beginning, I took a lot of time trying to figure out how to piece that together in a way that would work for a business owner until I started to just fully appreciate that what they cared more about was getting a good valuation for their business. Once I started working on pricing and making sure that I can make an offer that they would like and then actually learn how to put together that structure so that investors would also feel like they were getting a value for doing that deal. Until I cracked that part, all the other pageantry didn't matter. And so I would say... If somebody's starting early, focus on getting a good deal, a good business that you can get for a good price. Once you can get that done, every investors will open the doors. They will not care about your background and all those things. I'm living proof of that. They care more about a good business. They want you to be ethical and they want you to be honest and trustworthy and you know all those types of things, which I think I demonstrate. I'm, I'm a very candid person. If anybody who had asked me when I was sitting in classes at Columbia Business School, which is one of the reasons why Tim was a friend of mine, when Tim asked me, are you a student at Columbia Business School? No, I'm not a student at Columbia Business School. I'm sitting in the back of your class and auditing it. Right? He knows that, you know, hears that directly from my mouth, not me trying to obfuscate with that. And so if you're the type of person who's honest and trustworthy and you put together a good deal, investors are more likely than not going to willing to back you. And you don't have to wait until you're in your 30s or when you have an MBA or when you have any of the other sort of pedigree that some people in our space feel are prerequisites for doing this. Okay, that's great advice. I like your story for a number of reasons. And I mentioned Goodwill Hunting, Robin Hood, etc. I see a lot of integrity in what you're doing. If you were to take a time slice at the moment where you're not a student sitting in a class, getting a top tier education, skipping the year long, like the GMAT, maybe multiple times taking the GMAT, getting through admissions, all that stuff. And you're just saying, nope, I'm going straight to the source. And yet what you're doing with it is commendable. And so it really raises the question, do you just cross your T's and dot your I's and wait in the queue? Or, you know, if you see a house on fire, let's say, I don't know, I'm kind of losing my analogy here, but just diving in and solving the problem. Because like you say, you are very candid and you are sharing it with people. And presumably people won't be doing the same thing that you're doing exactly. But, you know, that's not the point. The point is go out and do new things. And what I hear about your story is very much the right person at the right time. So I wonder if know your time would be a good takeaway from that as well. 
I think that's rare. And I'm happy to hear you reference Goodwill Hunting because that character Matt Damon played was like an inspiration on some level for me as well. Just he was interacting with the Harvard Business School as a part of that story. I took a lot of inspiration from the fact that the curriculum is not proprietary. It's a book. (laughs) A lot of the, the same stuff is just books. It's in the books. So if you can go to the library and find the same books that the guys are reading, here's a, as it relates to the education side, the syllabus for most courses that are available to students exists somewhere on the net and not in some hidden, like you have to have a, a login to get it. You can pull up the syllabus for a Harvard Graduate School of Education or a Yale School of Management or a Morehouse. You can find those online. They're accessible. And if you read the same syllabus that the other guys are reading and you get the same books that the other guys are reading, what's the difference between your education other than the instruction that you're getting from the professor? And so for me, that was the approach. Like, let me get all that same information and then let's start from there. That's sort of the analogy with Goodwill Hunting. It was the story he told was that I'm reading the same books you read. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so that that was the approach that I had. There's something else to there too. You're actually going out and getting it. You're not passively sitting and waiting for it to be given to you. So I'd argue in some ways you're firing more neurons and it probably helps with the synthesis of information, et cetera. So I think it's a virtuous cycle that you're creating there. Again, not to disparage anyone who goes the other route. I'm sure there's other pros and cons, but that's something different I see in in your approach as well. Yeah. And I would just say like entrepreneurially, it's the prerequisite for being successful entrepreneurially is not the academic pedigree, right? And almost every other field of endeavor where you're trying to approach something where you need a job or something like that. Yes. Those things generally you need a degree to prove that you have achieved whatever the academic success is. But for me or for entrepreneurship, that's not necessarily the case. And I think that's been proven across multiple, multiple generations of startups. And I guess my story is sort of applying that now to this world in the private equity slash entrepreneurship slash search fund world. Okay. So now let's pivot to you traveling the world. You're about a third, I guess, of the way through your round the world tour. Skipping to the end, do you think you're going to settle down in New York again, or are you hooked now on having property all over the place? As a part of my trip, I'm not buying property, but I am collecting a unique view on the world. Like, for instance, I'm in Turkey right now, and as of today, we're three days away from when Hamas attacked Israel. Now, when Hamas attacks Israel or Israel attacks Gaza and Palestine, the whole conflict in the Middle East, that's usually oceans and oceans away from me. And I'm somewhere nestled in New York. And that story is mostly on the news. And there's a video that I'm seeing on my laptop, but I'm in Istanbul. Israel's down the street. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, all the countries that are potentially at war or are going to be at war, they're all right here. <laughs> it creates a unique feeling for me as like a, like it better helps me understand like the global context in the which like we as human beings live. Like, I think it's easier in America to feel a little bit isolated from the uh, conflicts and issues that are showing up in other countries, but it's a lot different. My feeling right now is the feeling I, I think Americans might have if Mexico right now was at war with Panama. That's the feeling I have right now. Like it's really close. <laughs> so, like yeah. it's really not that far. And separately, like these countries are biblical countries as well. So I grew up in a Christian church. So a lot of the stories that I grew up listening to are 
in cities that are within driving distance of me right now. And for instance, when I was in Athens, I stood on a rock that Paul stood on and gave a speech that is very well known in Acts. So yeah, like it, for me, it's been an interesting experience of connecting me to the wider world and the wider the global community, something I hadn't had an opportunity to do before. And I'm happy I got a chance to take advantage of it now. Yeah, I'm really uh, excited for you, what lies ahead, what you're doing. Definitely want to follow in your footsteps. To some extent, I've lived abroad for a bit in, in East Asia. I'd love to hear about where you've been so far. I think you started in Africa. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I started in Cape Town, South Africa. So yeah, Cape Town, Greece. Last month I was in Spain and this month I'm in Turkey. Next month I'll be in India. I'm not certain where I'll be after India. I'm deciding right now between going to Thailand or going to Kenya. There's a proposed change in my itinerary that we're, me and Ramohi are considering right now and we're figuring out what the details will be. But either I'll be after India, I'll either be in Thailand or I'll be in Kenya. That is one of the coolest sentences I've ever said out loud. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the coolest sentences I've ever heard. That's a tough one, man. If it was going to be Thailand or Vietnam, I'd say, why can't you do both? But yeah, Thailand or Kenya, it sounds like you might have to be. So regardless, I'm going to get to Thailand. It's still on the itinerary. The change is just that I'll be going there later. So either I'll go to Kenya, Tanzania, and then from Tanzania, go to Thailand, or I'll go straight to Thailand and then go a bunch of countries because we're going to every country a month at a time. So okay. that's the, the reason for the potential change in the itinerary. Could you extend it by one month? The entire trip? Yeah. I'm strongly considering that. Like, I've really enjoyed my time with Remote here. I like the logistics for everything that are handled for me. They handle the housing. They handle the trip. They handle the flight. They handle transportation back and forth between the airport. Everything wow. is just, you just show up in the country and they handle everything. They set up a co-working space for you to work from with good Wi-Fi. Everything is just like handled by them. It's very, very seamless. I really like that and want to continue living in that mode. That said, I could imagine a time at the end of the year where I'm like, oh, you know what? I've had enough. But honestly, the feeling I have when I'm in these countries, is like I have a month here. So it's a lot of time, but it's also, I know that time is going to end. I get to prioritize certain things. I get to deprioritize other things. It's not vacation. It's like, I'm really getting one month to really understand what it's like to be a citizen of this country. And so it's not like I just go and try to find all of the key places to take a picture and then leave. I'm literally finding places that I like to eat. You know what I'm saying? And getting yeah. to go back there the next day. And knowing that I could go back there two weeks from now, that's like a great feeling. And so I don't know if I want to change that yet. Maybe in the future, I'll feel that way. But right now, I'm thinking to myself, I probably will do this for like a year and a half, if not more. But who knows? We'll see how it ultimately plays out. Well, I'd like to talk about Africa a little bit. Like I see the necklace around your neck. What did it mean for you going back there? What was the experience like? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it was my first time in Africa. My name is Bakari, which is a Swahili word, which means of noble promise. For me, going to Africa was like really cathartic. And to this day, I would still say Cape Town has still been the best experience that I've had so far at on remote here. I'm not certain that we'll be able to overcome that unless Kenya is just like amazing. And my name is Swahili, which is the language that's mostly spoken in Kenya anyway. And so I'm really excited for that option as well. Um, so we'll see how it ultimately plays out. I'm just, Africa was just, I struggled to put it into words when I was in Africa and I made videos which exist on my platform where I'm documenting my experience. The platform is called Nomad Noir, the audience listening. So you can go on YouTube and find it. And I really tried to capture how I felt about Africa from the moment I landed. Like as soon as I landed, 
I set up my tripod, I turned on my camera and I pointed it towards me and I started speaking directly to this is how I'm feeling as I'm landing. And it was like, for me, it was like really magical and, uh, and exciting. So I was very happy to be here. My father, this chain is my father's chain and the pendant I got in honor of him because my dad was like really big in Africa and wanted me to be aware of my roots and where we came from as Black people in America. So yeah, it was like a really big moment to get to be there. That's great. So looking forward now, having your at least eight months, maybe nine ahead of you, what are some of the things you're looking forward to as far as new experiences and new countries? Have you given that any thought? Well, as I mentioned, you know, Kenya. Yeah. That'll be cool. Tanzania as well. And learning how to develop and create content for the platform has been an interesting challenge and finding ways to get the audience engaged and keeping them you know, making content that's both like ethical and fun because, you know, ultimately there's no like camera guy. I'm, I'm holding a selfie stick and I'm working with my producer to like edit that stuff. And so it's a challenge of trying to make sure that I'm getting the right content and the right story told without impacting people on a privacy level. And because I'm literally just going out whatever I can get. We're cutting and taking and turning into something interesting for people to watch. And so this is my first time operating as like a influencer and content creator. And it's interesting learning about the challenges that some of us bump into as we try to entertain an audience and build one. From what I've seen so far, it looks pretty good. So definitely recommend people check out. And I myself will be following Nomad Noir. Last question, macro view. What are you looking forward to for us as like the world? Is AI interesting you or? For a long time, I was trying to avoid using ChatGPT as a part of my tool case. I was actively not using that website. And slowly I've been starting to, when I write an email to somebody, I'll look at the email and then I'll take it to ChatGPT and say, hey, what do you think about this? And they'll be like, oh, maybe you should add this or add that. It's surprising how useful it is for like making sure that your messaging is clear and you're getting across the thoughts that you actually want to get said. So yeah, for me, it's been an interesting tool for that purpose. I'm certain I am underusing it. I'm certain that there are parts of my lifestyle and process that could be automated in a way that I'm truly just not recognizing. And I'm excited to see how that plays out. I wouldn't, like I used to work for an artificial intelligence startup actually. Funny enough, it went out of business just before the announcement of ChatGPT, which is what brought AI to like really the forefront of most people's attention. <laughs> it's so funny. Like it's the first time I ever experienced the problem of being a little too ahead. <laughs> this is the first time I've experienced that by working at that startup. But fun stuff and I like AI and hopefully I'll find an opportunity to apply it in my work again. Yeah, it's great. I spoke to a CEO who used it for focus interviews when he couldn't access certain people. He'd have the AI build that persona and then ask it questions and then follow up saying, why did you answer that way? To understand kind of the perspective and uh, what you mentioned too, as far as throwing in someone's email and being like, how should I reply? Or how's this reply that I've prepared? It's interesting to discover your blind spots a little bit. Like you kind of know they're there, but the world still makes sense the way that you're seeing it. And then you realize, whoa, there's like a whole other area that I omitted or something. And so it, I think it can help in that regard. That's a great way of putting it, actually. Yeah, it, it does help you discover your blind spots. Well, Bakari, it's a pleasure. I really like your story, your ongoing story. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to highlight or point people to other than Nomad Noir? I think that's about it. People can reach out to me via email. I'm sure you can put that on the notes, Bakari at gravesallcap.com. You can reach out to me via LinkedIn. You can stay in touch with you there. 
and then documenting my trip through my online show. Great. Well, enjoy the world. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon. Thank you.